Hey Rob. How are hey, you? Welcome, good. Welcome to, welcome to uh, Cambridge. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so this is a Facebook Live, but we'll post it as a podcast and other okay. things later. So you are on the record. Excellent. But, um, but you're you're now officially no longer at the Bank of England. That's correct. As of last Wednesday. As of, as of last Wednesday. So so can you first tell us a little bit about your? Let me make sure that there are enough people watching because um, there's a, this little moment where build up audience okay well there's there's 60 people watching great all right so tell me what you were doing sort of leading up to and sort of until you you recently left the bank of england okay so um i was the manager of the digital currencies work at the bank um and the bank of england is undertaking a research project as of uh february 2015 so we published the research or the bank published the research agenda uh, back then and then since then they've been you know doing some research on that and then there's in economics computer science some legal stuff as well uh, and then the bank published its first paper uh, on the economic research back in july this year so, so economic research on digital currencies yeah on so this question the, the question we put out there and uh, the bank put out there in 2015 was um you know, should central banks issue digital currencies? Mm -hmm. And that was what I was working on uh, when I was at the Bank of England, essentially. And, and I didn't read it, but was the conclusion that they should? <laughs> I think the conclusion, I mean, it, it, it was more of an assessment of what the economic impact would be. Yeah. Um, so they did a model and they sort of came up with some results. And uh, I think it's interesting to sort of just think through the channels of like, what would the impact of this be on the macro economy? And I think that papers are just sort of nice. A nice start to the work, mm -hmm. uh, but obviously over you know over the forthcoming sort of months and years, I, I expect there'll be more um, economic research on the subject because it's a big subject, right? Mm -hmm. It's a big change to the financial system. So I think it's important that you know, like we engage plenty of researchers in all three fields. Mm -hmm. um, all three fields are there. So the uh, computer science, obviously, yep. economics, and then legal as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think those are the three sort of interlocking fields. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things I've found from doing the work is that you can't really separate them out because people think of these things as three separate disciplines. But I think one of the interesting things about the digital currencies work is how like they all interlock with each other, how the, like, the law interlocks with the computer science, which mm -hmm. interlocks with the, the economics. Like You can't really extricate the technology and the economics because if you, let's say Bitcoin is an example, mm -hmm. its economics is written into its code and its regulation is written into its code. And I think that's what people, people are used to these being three separate things. And I think when you see that, I mean, to me, that was what was very interesting about Bitcoin is it fused those three things together. It was mm -hmm. both, well, it was computer science, obviously. It was mm -hmm. a, you know, a piece of, a piece of code. It was, but then it's, you know, its regulation was almost written into its, you know, it wasn't regulated by law, but it was regulated mm -hmm. by its code, which I thought was very interesting. And that's something that sort of Lawrence Lessig talked about in his books. And then, the, again, the microeconomics and the macroeconomics of Bitcoin were sort of written into its code as well. Mm -hmm. So, and that, and that had certain, in, you know, that had a certain impact. So we did an article back in 2014 about the sort of economics of Bitcoin and how the incentives within Bitcoin sort of led it to be, mm -hmm. you know, led certain outcomes. So, for example, I think if you read the original paper, it talks about, you know, the sort of vision was this completely decentralized system where people plugging in with their laptops and, you know, being able to make payments. But because of the way the, the economic incentives have played out, you've got these very big mining pools. It's this sort of very industrial thing now with, you know, a relatively small number of miners effectively, mm -hmm. you know, doing the mining in the network, which is not really what was envisaged in the original paper. But I think it's very interesting that 
it's it's the economics that drove it to that outcome. Right, right, right. And I think that's why it's so important to think about the economics and the technology together mm-hmm. and not see them as these two separate things mm-hmm. that can just be, you know, like you can work on that and work on that and the two don't really need to, you know, have contact with each other. And I, I remember, and I, I hope I'm, I can't, I, I guess I can talk about things that we talked about when you were still yeah. at the bank, but because <clears throat> I, I, well, I'll say my, my, my friends in the Bank of um, Japan mm-hmm. have the similar thing where, you know, since I guess it was the 90s yeah. when DigiCash was around, the central banks were kind of fascinated with this idea of digital currencies and, and, and rethinking what money is. Yeah. And um, I think you mentioned to me that um, Bitcoin just sort of, <coughs> the fact that it was running gave, because I think central banks, there are a lot of people who don't really care about technology. And there are some, often a small group of people who, who are, tracking and looking at the technology. And what was interesting about Bitcoin was, I think, at least from some of my friends said that, you know, we understood theoretically that you could do all these things like use cryptography and do distributed ledgers and things like that. But the fact that something started running gave um, people inside the central banks the ability to sort of point at that and say, we really need to have an opinion on this. Is that true? Exactly. I mean, I think without, things need to be tangible. And I think Bitcoin made like a lot of theoretical discussions about like how do you run you know like casual monetary policy because all these questions about could you have people you having holding direct accounts directly with the central bank are fairly you know they're not they're not ideas that came along with bitcoin you know you can go back there's papers in the 80s that talk about this stuff so it's not new in the sense of like theoretically we could do this but what bitcoin did i think was crystallize it and say well Theoretically, we could have done it, but practically, how do you possibly do it? Mm-hmm. And I think when you know when uh, Bitcoin came along, it said, "Okay, here's a way. It's practically doable. Here's a way of, of of like running the financial system in a different way." And you know, it was flawed, and it's you know, they, they, people talk about that and they make a lot of it. But I think it, the real powerful thing was like, here's a vision of how things can be done differently, mm-hmm. and here's like a piece of code that actually works, um, and it you know is you know you can transfer value and you don't have to use any financial institution to do that. And I think that to me is that it was the structural question that it, that it raised was, was the really interesting thing. So, so you, do you think that even though there was some theory around it, the consensus mechanism, the mining, that, that was a surprise to you? I mean, I mean, people had sort of talked about things like that, right? But, but the way that, because I, I talked to one former um, head of research of one Central Bank, who, yeah. who read the Satoshi paper very early when it came out. Yeah. Said, there's nothing new here, mm-hmm. and, and there's nothing to see. I'm going to move on. And I think he, he said that theoretically or technically there, there was nothing new. And, yeah. and what was new was that they just did it. But is that, how do you feel? Was there surprise? I, I, I think people had been theorizing about this again. So there was a speech in 1999 done by Mervyn King when he was deputy governor subsequently became governor of the Bank of England. And he talked about this idea, and I think it's in his book as well, um, the, the, the book he did uh, post-crisis, and um, that came out, I think, this year or last year. And he basically said, uh, it's called The End of Alchemy, and that's it, his book. And he talks in that about this concept of, so if you go back and read his speech in 99, he talks about this idea, okay, well, if you could just transfer, um, you know, a, a, a basket of securities or whatever it was, like, you know, using a, um, a, you know, a set of algorithms, then that you would, like, why would you need money at all? 
if you could do that, if you could like make settlement that way, and why would you need a central bank at all? So he talks about that in his speech. And then, but what didn't exist is when you, you can sort of talk about technology in the abstract because technology in '99 was obviously a big topic and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. But there was no like tangible, okay, well, show me like practically this technology. How does it work? But I think what changed between when he wrote that speech and then when he wrote his book this year, I mm-hmm. think, um, is that Bitcoin had come along and said, okay, the thing that you were talking about as an abstract concept mm-hmm. in 99 is now a real thing that actually works for all, you know, people complain about, okay, well, it's got the transaction volume, it doesn't work. And all. I think those criticisms sort of missed the point. It's sort of like going back to, you, you know, when, um, when, when, a blockbuster were talking about streaming you know when they, mm-hmm. when they looked at streaming videos and it was like i think one of the they got like a, a consultant to sort of look mm-hmm. at you know is it going to be a threat to the video business and i think one of the um points that was made in that report is okay well streaming a video over the internet will be very you know it doesn't really work the, the, mm-hmm. the bandwidth is not there and all the rest of it but that the point is that those things change right mm-hmm. And then, you know, like 15 years later, now we've got, you know, like gigabit connections and we can stream like very high definition video. And that obviously changes the nature of Mm -hmm. the video rental business. And I think to say, oh, to point at sort of these flaws in in Bitcoin and say, well, you know, it it can't do this and it can't do this and it can't do that. It's like, but those things are fixable, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. like, you can have something with much higher transaction volume. So Mm -hmm. like, don't fixate on these things that it can't do. Look at the things that it has achieved and think about how that would change the financial system. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I totally agree. And and I I always see, because I was working on internet stuff, I always think of things from the perspective of the internet. And like, exactly like you said about streaming, but there are all these things that the internet couldn't do, but now does. I'm even guilty of, of, of that quite a bit, but, but what's, what you know, and, and to me, what's what's interesting is um, you know how how that evolution might happen. And um, like for instance, I was talking to um, um, Zuko, who uh, the, um, he and Madaris and others are doing um, um, Zcash, right? So yep. it's the anonymous cash. And initially, I was super negative. I said, "Now there's no way even Bitcoin is being beaten up as um, uh, too." you know, money laundering friendly. <laughs> but then, you know, he's listened, he's been iterating. And one of the things that he, and, and but, but I, I, I think, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is that, that one of the problems, I think current money laundering laws and um, KYC and the travel rule, all these laws, for those of you who don't know them, are, are ways to try to catch bad guys by making it illegal to transact without being able to be tracked. Mm. Um, now, sort of, Aside from the fact that you're being punished for not really a crime, but the ability to create a, do a crime, um, the technologies for tracking money laundering are sort of sort of work for commercial banks, but they're still hard when it's international. But when you try to implement them in Bitcoin, they break because you can't, for instance, the travel rule says uh, you have to send the personal identifying information to the bank you were sending it to. Sometimes you don't have that information. Even if you did, how do you send it? And I heard a rumor that one regulator told uh, exchange that they should send it by email, which is ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. So, so then the problem with the blockchain is that you can see, once you know who's an account number it belongs to, then you can see everything that they've done, which yeah. is also terrible from a privacy perspective. And what, um, what Zcash guys are doing now is they're, they're actually putting um, a special a key in so that they can put the privacy information, the identifying information in the transaction, mm-hmm. but only allow certain people to see it. So when people look at it from the outside, um, they can't see the privacy, the, the identifying information, but you build it in. And I think yeah. for me, 
And one of the problems with a lot of the fintech startups right now is they assume the current laws mm. and they're trying to build in all these anti-money laundering laws into the technology instead of saying, okay, here's a technology. How do we pr protect privacy? But what do we need to do in order to get the regulators off our back? Mm. And is there a, 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 cause, cause I think that's going to be one of the big questions. People yep. will say, you know, Bitcoin is lawless. Um, central banks will either use something else or will make Bitcoin horribly um, uh, uh, identifiable that yeah. you won't have the fungibility. But I think what the opportunity that we have, in my view, is to try to come up with some sort of technical solution that's sort of in the sweet spot of yeah. giving the regulators enough visibility without giving up the privacy that we need. Yeah. And it's hard. But again, and a lot of the, the, the cypherpunks and libertarians will be against me, but I know from things like, I don't know if I'm, gonna, I'm rambling for a minute, but I'll, I'll, I'll make a point. Like CALEA was this law that the US passed because mm -hmm. when telephones became digital, um, the telephone company said, we can't wiretap on call like you, <clears throat> you, um, we used to be able to. Yep. And they were saying that you can't do wiretaps anymore, um, like in the old days. But what happened was the U.S. passed a bill that forced the telephone companies to make everything wiretappable, which really leads to this massive wiretapping stuff that occurs today. Because what happened was the government said, we will give you the money to um, set up the telephone system so that the law enforcement can wiretap easily. And it actually made it even easier to wiretap than when they used to have to put alligator clips on, right? Mm. And, and, it was, and at the time, the telephone companies were, to me, um, sort of commercial enough that they said, we don't care about privacy. If you're going to give us money, of course, we'll install it, right? And so, so my fear is that if we are not talking to the regulators about, or it's not really even the regulators, it's going back to first principles of what's, what's the balance between privacy and, and the need for law enforcement. If we don't come up with a technical solution that works, my fear is that the regulators will come in and just create something that's like... Um, terribly exploitative of privacy. So I don't know if, if you've... So I think it's a difficult, you know, it's one of those difficult balances to strike because you're basically saying, okay, well, there's the... Because it's about, like, the individual's right to liberty versus the individual's right to security, right to life, basically. Mm -hmm. And, like, how do you play those two things off when, you like, as a state, you know that, um, you know, there's people who want to infringe, you know, like, destroy life and how do you stop them doing that but then also in a democracy you know you've got to have people have got you know the, the rights of an individual are very important and very you know central to you know western society and how do you balance those two things and i don't think there's this really simple answer it's how oh, you do this yeah. and, and, the, and 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 the technology like is not you know it can't answer that question for you right but but but, but you can make technology Right now, at least, so yeah. this, it becomes harder and harder. Yeah. But right now, we could build in tools and encryption and, mm -hmm. and different types of multi-signature and all kinds of tools we could build in that help protect privacy in certain situations, yeah. right? And or or maybe give privacy in exchange for something. So, for instance, maybe if you're going to pay tax with that yeah. coin, um, you have a little less privacy than if you're using it for something else. Yeah. And, and because my fear is, for instance, is rambling again. I mean, we're, we're talking about using um, Bitcoin for the poor people, for the unbanked. Well, it would be the worst possible thing if everyone who was poor 
had no more financial privacy because it's yep. basically financial privacy is what you need for political privacy, right? Yep. You know, if you if you knew what books people bought, who they drank coffee with, they can't mount a uh, they can't you know go against the establishment without fear of retribution. Now in America, in America, it's even scary these days. But but globally, if you think about the fact that this is a global standard, there are a lot of countries where you you would want to make sure that people had privacy, and it, and it would be awful if something like Bitcoin were used for poor people and the rich people were able to keep their privacy and the poor yeah. people lost it all, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it would, you know, that would be a bad outcome. Uh, and I think what, you know, what regulators need to, because what we've got is there's a set of laws to achieve certain policy goals at the moment. So those, you know, like AML, KYC, okay, we need, and there's like ways of doing that. But I think it's sort of similar to the financial system itself in the sense it grew up before right. this big technological change and it sort of worked for that world. It's like you're coming back to the point about the alligator clips, right? Mm -hmm. What do you do in this new world where like so much more is possible in terms of like infringement of privacy and tracking and all mm -hmm. the rest of it? You have to like consciously say, okay, we're going to like make sure that we can provably you know, almost like deny ourselves the power to do all this very intrusive stuff mm -hmm. so that when a state wants to say, okay, well, we need that guy's payment records, there's a proper legal process they've got to go through. It's not to say that under no circumstances can you ever get, you know, can you ever get this, right. this information, but it's like you have to go through the right legal process and, to get it, right? And the problem is, and this ties to the end-to-end -end encryption Apple um, iPhone debate, which mm -hmm. is that uh, system is only as secure as the weakest link, and the weakest link is the bribable official, right? So what you don't want is the process to be technically secure, but sort of process-wise insecure, right? Mm -hmm. Because, because you know, you, you could imagine, um, even, even today you have foreign regimes coming to America, asking people for information. And I do know that sometimes the government will trade information for foreign nationals in exchange for other things. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. And, and, and I think that my, and then also politics swing, right? So the, 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 uh, the acceptability of false positives. So ending up on the no-fly list, um, how many terrorists need to be in the pool for 1,000 people to be put onto a no-fly list. And yeah. so, so, so again, as, as, as the world changes, um, I think we, we do have to be careful about, you know, uh, how we, how we, how we architect the thing because, because it's, it's very s similar, which is, and the other problem is also just hacking, right? So if, if somebody, if, if every state police um, office could go in and um, have access to everybody's financial records. All you have to do is break into a, a sheriff's office somewhere, and then you have access to all of that. And so, yeah. so I think I think it needs it, it, it's 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 a it's a fairly complicated problem with yeah. I think a lot of creativity needed in order yeah. to come up with the right answer. But, but I think I think technology can improve it. I mean, you can get this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because what what you want is you know compliance with the the policy goals mm -hmm. to be as good as it can be. Or the you know uh, you know within the context of protecting people's privacy. But, yeah, right? and I think the policy goals is kind of what I meant by first principles, yeah. right? So what I think the government and the people should decide what's the trade-offs yeah. given the technology we have. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, okay, we have these three laws: KYC, follow rule, blah blah yeah. blah. How do we implement them in Bitcoin? Yeah. I think that that's like the alligator clip thing. It doesn't yeah. really transfer. Yeah. But I want to switch to economics for a second. So, yeah. so before that, I wanted to get your 
a little bit about your background. So you're, you're an economist? No, right? so by background, I'm a lawyer. You're a lawyer. Um, okay. But I've really spent my whole career around economics. I mean, I went to LSE, so that's like a school for economics yeah. uh, where I studied law. So I surrounded it by economists there. And throughout my career, I've tended to work in places where they're you know economics heavy. So for example, the equivalent, the UK equivalent, the FTC, I worked in. So I did like competition there. And then since I worked at the Bank of England, obviously I've been surrounded by econo economists there and the work, you know, mm -hmm. By definition, work at central bank is very heavily um, heavily influenced by you know economics. It's like macroeconomics is the is the sort of primary um, discipline. And when we were doing our work, that's the lens which through which central banks tend to think about things because they tend to be you know any institution that's made up by like a certain discipline tends to think yeah. about the world in that way. Um, but yeah, so my career has been sort of it's interesting in the sense that I spent like most of my educational career was training to be a lawyer and doing a master's degree and all the rest of it. But then a lot of the subjects that I was attracted to, like banking law, like how's like how do you regulate tax law, how do you sort of impose taxes on that? What I was interested in was this sort of how the state and commerce and the individual sort of interact with each other. So I did like constitutional law, mm -hmm. administrative law, this type of thing. So the, the, the thing that I've been interested in is this sort of relationship between the state and the individual and the private sector and how do they interact and this you know the whole taxes privacy all those type of regulation is all sort of bound up with that and i think the real the thing that changes those things historically has been changes in technology right that's mm -hmm. the thing that you have to deal with so for example you know when electronic payments came along the law has to develop to sort of accommodate electronic payments because they're not the same as checks anymore and the laws you know they have to you have to rethink it and you have to, so it, it, it's it's a really interesting um you know, it's, it's really interesting to have the sort of legal background, but then work mm -hmm. your career primarily in economics. So, so w with that, I you know, I, I'm, the, the, and maybe you guys have written the paper, but the one that I read that was pretty interesting was um, the one from NYU with Max Raskin and yep. uh, David Yermak um, about what's called digital currencies, decentralized ledgers, and the future of central banking. Yep. And, and they kind of talk about what would a central bank do. Yep. Um, and one of the things that I thought was fascinating was the idea, maybe not fascinating for everyone, but, but, but the idea that you could create a digital currency. And actually, I was talking to the Bank of Japan about this years ago, but the idea that you could create a digital currency that increased or decreased in value. So you wouldn't need to deposit in a bank in order to in, earn interest. Yeah. Okay, so that gives the central bank an interesting tool, which they can, first of all, control. you could control interest even if it's, not, if it's in cash, mm -hmm. which um, may or may not be a happy thing for people who have a lot of cash under their mattress. But the other thing that it does is that if you can take deposits directly from people, you could eliminate the need for commercial banks to have the deposit business, right? And then if you take the deposits away from the commercial banks, then the commercial bank's loan business starts to look more like a mutual fund where you put your current accounts in cash with the central bank and you take your savings and your stored value into the commercial banks. And, um, and they have to invest it like anybody else that raises money. Yep. And then the interesting thing, which was, I was just with Simon Johnson in his class, and, and he said, you know, there's a possibility that overall, one of the students said, well, what ha happens to debt? You know, how do we keep the debt going? And then Simon said, well, maybe debt could decrease. And maybe, in, 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 in he and I have been talking about so the future of bookkeeping and the future of, you know, probabilistic programming being used to do modeling. And maybe equities could become less risk. And if you could create derivatives and equities that were more transparent, more modeled in real time, maybe we could shift a lot of the money from debt to debt to equities. Yeah. 
But then obviously the commercial banks don't like this because it's like, well, what's, what do they do anymore? And I think one of the th things why I'm excited to work with central banks is that, you know, fintech, sorry, I'm going to ramble out and I'll let you go. <laughs> but I, but I, I'm worried that the traditional fintech guys are, businesses are being sort of put together by people who are in the business yeah. of making money on the inefficiencies in the system. I yeah. call it the road and exterminator problem. This is actually, you can attribute it to Ronald Reagan, which, who said that, Rodent exterminators don't want rodents to disappear. They want a steady flow of rodents yeah. so they can stay in business. And so my concern with the traditional fintech business of the people who are in the business of finance yep. is they don't really want the system to be completely, um, to completely eliminate some of the problems that it has. And, and I, I don't know if you, what you think about I that. Think, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, if, if you're making money from the friction in the system, then if someone says, here's a way of, or, the, or like the layers of intermediation system, if someone says, well, we can do this in a completely different way that doesn't require these layers anymore, which is sort of what Bitcoin did, mm -hmm. you're going to think, well, wait a minute, that doesn't work for me. So you're going to try and sort of preserve what you have and say, well, okay, we're going to use it blockchain or whatever, and fine. But I think a bigger thing is it's very hard for, if you've like grown up in a system that looks a certain way, it's very difficult to like conceive of it working any other way. It's like, this is what I know. It's like a fish water thing. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, you know, like, of course you have, of course payments happen this way. Of course you need intermediaries. And what, what, what I, and it, and it takes a bit of time and it may take like new people to come along. And the way I think of it is, remember like when the web came along, like mid nineties and people like saying, okay, like the web will be great for advertising. So what are we going to do? We're going to have these banners and like, there's going to be like, when people see them, then they'll go, because that's what they had on the side of a bus, right? Because that's how I'm on a billboard. Because that's how advertising they didn't even works. Rotate, yeah. Well, exactly, but, but yeah, exactly. But it's this concept yeah, yeah. of you have a little piece, piece of like graphics or whatever, mm -hmm. and people look at it, and then they go, "Yeah, I want a coke," and they go off right, and get right, a coke, right. right? And when the internet came along, they're like, "Well, that's that's the model I know, so I'll just stick mm -hmm. stick the banners on the web." And that's basically how advertising worked on the web in the sort in the early days. And I think we're in the sort of what I call the banner advertising phase of financial mm -hmm. technology, right? Where people are thinking, well, we have this now and let's just like use a blockchain instead. Right. And it's exactly, the, apart from that, it's exactly the same, which is, you know, which is not the point. I think the point is that you rethink yeah. how you should do it. And, like, and, and so when Google or AdWords came along, I think it was Yahoo that, mm -hmm. you know, the original, Bill Gross had the original invention, but the concept of the search engine in AdWords completely changed advertising because before then, nobody, like what Google is selling is the state of mind of an individual at a particular point in time, which is like gold to an advertiser, right? right? But before the web came along, it's like ridiculous. If I'd gone back to like the 80s and said, okay, advertisers, in the future, you'll be able to like, someone will be thinking of something and you can advertise them exactly when they're thinking of car insurance, you can show them a car insurance ad, exactly the point they're thinking about it. They would have thought it's ridiculous, right? right, right? right. But now, through a search engine, it's perfectly possible. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm thinking about, like the rethinking how you do advertising. Mm -hmm. That's a massive business mm -hmm. now. And I think that we haven't got there yet with financial mm -hmm. technology. We're and still in the let's do banner advertising on the web phase. And, and I think they also don't understand layering. Because yeah. most central banking systems, they're these huge monolithic things that go from the wire all the way up. I mean, there's a little bit of layering, but it's, yeah. it's, it's a, 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 a obfuscated. So I, I, my, the, the metaphor that I use, because I'm probably older than you, is when the telephone companies and the cable companies invented multimedia, they wanted to control everything. Yeah. It was a set-top box. Mm -hmm. And they didn't think you could get everything over the internet, as we were saying. And, but the internet was great, because you had these layers. You had you know, the Ethernet and TCP IP, and, and by unbundling, you could create competition at every layer, yeah. but have sort of creativity in between. Mm -hmm. right? And I think that, that 
I feel like we're still pre TCPIP. We're pre Cisco, pre 3Com. And people, the banks are trying to build these things that look like AOL or CompuServe or Minitel. And in fact, we're still working on these layers. We don't even know where the layers are going to be. We, yeah. We're not sure it's going to be Bitcoin, but it'll probably be something like that. Um, and so, and, and I think that the finance people aren't that used to thinking in these unbundled layers. Yeah. And, and one of the things, and there's a question here that said, um, you know, would accountants become obsolete with digital currencies takeoff? So it's, when I sort of riff off of that, I think that the words that people use, like accounting and finance, they're also kind of fuzzy. To me, it's bookkeeping. Yeah. So, so right now we have bookkeeping, double entry bookkeeping that was invented what, by the Medici's, right? Yeah. And, and the, 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 the Italian merchants. And it's this idea of taking numbers and, and again, just, you know this, I shouldn't lecture you, but you know, so money being several things, right? It's a unit of account, which is the measurement of what a value of something is, yeah. the store of that value, right? And then the thing for the transaction, they're sort of bundled into one thing. And then the unit of account part, which is the accounting part, it's a pretty old fashioned thing that's kind of lossy because you're converting everything into a unified number. Yeah. And then you're putting in a, in this, in, into this ledger that, um, then you kind of start to add things up and then you come up with some big number for the value of a company or something like that. And it right. seems like that, that that bookkeeping is actually a layer, kind of like TCPIP was a layer. Mm. And for people who remember back then, um, you know, the idea that information move around in packets instead of lease lines was like a big deal. And, yeah. and, and I remember when, when we were first setting up our internet service provider in Japan, a bunch of law professors wrote these big um, papers on how the internet was illegal because you have with X25, which is a competing set standard, you had bilateral agreements between all of the countries. Yeah. And how could you be connected to Iran and be, uh, and be able to follow their laws? Mm -hmm. The internet is illegal and it won't happen just because it's illegal. But it happened because it was so great, it was so useful, and people adapted to the fact that it's somewhat lawless. And, and so it feels like right now we're sort of in this period where um, you've got Bitcoin that's just going to happen anyway, mm -hmm. right? And in the worst case, It'll happen on the fringe, but it's happening, right? Yeah. And so you kind of have to be in or you're not. Mm. And, and then there's pe people making these monoliths like they did when they were doing the internet. But my, my bet is that it's going to end up being the, being Bitcoin or something very similar. Mm. And, and the reason I get to that is this is also back in the internet days. I remember all the smart people, the community of the smartest, not all of them, but a lot of the smartest people were hanging around in the, in the TCPIP internet place. Yeah. And I think the thing that I notice is that the people who understand economics, computer science, um, you know, currencies, law, they seem to be hovering in the Bitcoin community more than anywhere else. And yeah. so I kind of feel like they're going to figure it out first. I don't know. Yeah. Do you, what do you think? I mean, I think that there are, it's hard to, it's sort of hard to talk about the future of Bitcoin because nobody really knows like exactly where it's going to go. But I think that there are so many useful pieces in there. And like, you know, we know that broadly cryptography is going to be part of it. We know that it's going to be a decentralized or more decentralized system than what we've got now. And I think um, by working together, we can sort of work out which pieces like we can adapt and I think that's, you know, that's the important thing. Because when, like, say Tim Berners-Lee put, you know, when he um, created the web, he didn't think, he didn't invent everything that came subsequently, right? Mm -hmm. But he basically created this way for people to think about, oh, actually, you could do this with it and do this with it. And then it, it sort of moved on from there. And I think that's sort of, you know, it's this catalyst. Mm -hmm. I think that's what the real value is, this catalyzing effect. And it makes people, it sort of almost forces them to rethink, okay, 
we need to rethink uh, how does money move around or we need to think about our laws and how do they work because I think you know coming back to your point about laws and things being illegal and all the rest of it I remember when I was back at um, doing my undergraduate degree there was this question about like law and morality and whether they were the same thing and like law is, is really this sort of societal construct that human beings create because it's useful right so it's not this thing that's handed down from god and said okay everything's got to work this way it's like something that we come up with because it's useful in a certain um a certain set of circumstances and the point of it is especially with common law is we can change it mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. technology right. changes and it can adapt and i think that's really been the strength of common law is that it's it's adaptability mm-hmm. and i think if and it's always been able to sort of accommodate new technology because look at the u.s constitution right it was written in uh 1789 I think. Um, but it's adapted for a country, you know, to, that's gone through all these huge technological changes. Except for the now, gun, gun part. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it still, it still works in 2016. Yeah. And, there are, you know, when you look at, like, constitutions of nations, there aren't many that have lasted that long and adapted that well. But I think mm-hmm. the real genius of it was that they built in this sort of adaptability through the Supreme Court, through common mm-hmm. law and all the rest of it. And they knew that future generations of, you know, uh, American citizens will be able to adapt American law and the American constitution to what the society then demanded. You can see it through the amendments and all the rest yep, of it. Yeah. And I think, like, it, it, I think when you study law, I think people who come at it from the outside, they see it as this sort of very mysterious thing and it's set in stone and all the rest of it. It isn't. It's this sort of very um, almost organic thing, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that can adapt. So I'm, I'm sort of skeptical when people say X or Y or Z is not legal. Well, okay. Yeah. It doesn't fit with the current laws, but the right. laws can change. Yeah, right? and the laws are supposed to reflect the norms of society. Yeah. Right? And I think the norms of society should evolve and the laws should evolve um, for the technology. I think it, it gets tricky, though, when, and, and this is kind of why I think the American system is mostly functional, is that it should be robust against like sudden shifts. Mm. It should be kind of a rolling average <laughs> so, that, so that you don't allow you know, a, 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 a spike in something to change it too much, although things like 9-11 do yeah. um, affect um, laws. But, 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 you know, but, but it is interesting also, I think that there's a, there are a lot of parallels with the internet. And I think the U.S. did a great job when the internet was rolling out. They said, we're not going to tax it, we're not going to overregulate it, yeah. and they let it go. Yeah. And I think there's a, and, and I hope that the, some of the regulators here remember that, mm. that sort of somewhat laissez-faire attitude allowed the U.S. has become quite dominant in the internet. The big difference is I think the internet is a little less scary to people than digital currency because digital currency is harder to unscrew up. When you screw it up, it involves money. Um, and probably the people, you know, the telcos and the content companies were um, powerful, but the banks are even more powerful. So yeah. the, the, the commercial interest in, in keeping the status quo, I think, is, is stronger, right? I, I think there is, but I think within within institutions, there is like there are different people have different views, right? Bank, mm. We talk about banks, and banks are not monolithic; they're made up of individuals, and individuals have different views on things. And I think there are at least a group of people within the commercial banks who recognise mm-hmm. that the financial system has got to change. That technology is the likeliest way for changing it fundamentally. Mm-hmm. That there are things that I mean, I think. At the moment, banks are sort of this big bundle of stuff. Mm-hmm. Some of it is, you know, useful economic um, activity, and some of it is rent extraction. Mm-hmm. And I think that if the technology comes along and sort of, you know, creates greater competition, knocks out some of the rent extraction, mm-hmm. there are still useful things that banks right. can do. And I think that the ones who recognise that, you know, the tide is turning and technology mm-hmm. is sort of driving that, and that they need to sort of 
sort of adapt mm -hmm. are likely to be okay. Because you look, I mean, I always think about like retailers in the 90s, right? Yeah. The, you know, the web came along and people were like, wow. And you saw all these sort of fairly daft stars like pets.com and things like that. And some, a lot of them went away, but you had things like Amazon that came on and they were enduring. Mm -hmm. They did change the retail yep. business. And there are some retailers like, you know, like Walmart or John Lewis or whoever, who have adapted to that new environment. And they have, you know, they have, they can fulfill their, their, their deliveries online and all the mm -hmm. rest of it. And some didn't. Woolworths did not adapt and mm -hmm. it doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Blockbuster did not adapt and it doesn't exist anymore. So I think that you are likely to see the same thing in finance where you'll see some mm -hmm. institutions recognize that this is a big, you know, the, 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 you know, the tide has turned, the mm -hmm. technology is driving this, it can't really be stopped, so you need to adapt. Mm -hmm. And others will say, oh no, this is all a flash in the pan, look at all these silly companies, mm -hmm. I'm not gonna bother with this. But I think in the long run, they'll pay a much higher price for it. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 what is interesting to think about is I think during the industrial revolution, a lot of the artisans that figured it out became the new industrialists. Mm -hmm. I think in the internet, the unbundling that happened, yeah. some of the telephone companies were dragged kicking and screaming, but they survived. And then in the retail, you see these new players yeah. or Uber and others. So, so what's interesting will be, you know, do the, you know, railways become the airlines, right? Yeah. Do the banks um, unbundle and survive? And, and I think each country is slightly different too. Yeah. And, and, so, but 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 I'm curious. So so you, you in your in your profile, I saw that you you were involved in the financial stability board. So I did. Uh, so it's the legal entity identifier work, for, like the FSB did back in. Okay. I think it started in 2011. So I was part of that. Because because describe what the FSB does. Because I think I think it's it's. I don't think most people know what it does. And I think it's to me the there's there's kind of all these opportunities. These startups, the Amazon comes of the future. But then there's also this other piece, which is we have a extremely fragile financial system where the amplification of fluctuation is always teetering on something really scary. So so can this also lead to financial stability? And is this is the FSB something that's going to play a role? I think. For sure, yeah, the FSB will, will play a role. And I mean, the FSB is sort of a um, group of central banks and uh, treasury departments mainly and, and securities regulators who think about the stability of the system as a whole. Because I think there's a lot of groups that think about, okay, banking regulation, they think about how payment systems are regulated. But I think the crisis demonstrated that what was missing was a, was a body that thought about the sort of macro prudential aspect and that's what the FSB does. Uh, in terms of the role of the FSB, I think you know they've been doing some uh, some good work on this and I think that they are engaged with it and I think it's important to think about because when we're thinking about stability of the system, I think the stability of the system can improve because I think a lot of people think about this is oh is, is distributed ledger or blockchain is it going to make things a lot worse mm -hmm. and I think it's it's natural that that people think about that because it's sort of like, okay, well, we don't want to make things any worse, right? Mm -hmm. But I think you've got to think about the system as it is now and say, well, how stable is the system today, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's not, you know, there are improvements that can be made, right? And the question is, can this technology make the system more stable? And I think it can because a lot of the instability in my mind comes from all these layers and the, the opacity and the complexity. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the future of the financial system in a way is a lot simpler than what it is now. Mm -hmm. I think if you can eliminate a lot of the wrinkles in the system, I think the same is true of the tax, because I used to do tax, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about tax law is it's all the wrinkles in the system that cause the problem. It's all these attempts to sort of endlessly, oh, we need to give an incentive for this, but then that causes this problem. We need, and if you, if you could resist the temptation, you say, right, we're just going to have a very simple system. Well, that and you have people who can lobby taxes to make it even more 
complex. Exactly. But you think about who's lobbying for that. It's people yeah. who make money out of that complexity. Right, right, that's right. But if you're in charge of the system as a whole, you should try and resist that. And mm -hmm. you should say, no, what we're going to have is we're going to have a very simple system and then we're going to stick to it. Mm -hmm. And we're going to resist this temptation to continually tinker with it. Yeah, yeah. And I think what is true for taxation is true for regulation. I think that you can, by making the system much simpler, you can make it much more stable. Mm -hmm. And that's fundamentally the, the key to the internet, right? Yep. It, it, in the end-to-end -end principle of the core should be as simple as possible yep. and the innovation should be around on the edges. And yep. I think that that, right now, with the financial system, you have innovation going on in every layer and, like you said, it creates a, a tremendous opacity. Because so, that's the other piece other than digital money is securities, like derivatives. Yep. The, if, if we could somehow make it less lossy, make it more transparent, mm. and then build in code that's tracking for, so that maybe in the future, a big insurance company couldn't sell credit default swaps that it would never be able to yeah. um, be, make good on. And, and there should be a system that sort of automatically um, knows that, right? Yeah, exa exactly. I mean, and the way, I, and I think it depends how you conceive of regulation as well. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of people think about, you know, regulators should be able to stop all these bad things happening. They should be sort of om omni, you know, um, omniscient and, um, you know, like, and I think that's a problem because they're regulators are human beings, right? And right. there's a limit, unless you're going to spend like billions and billions of dollars on like hiring more and more regulators. And, and I, I'm, I'm not sure whether that would necessarily work, but think about the market is going to do your regulation for you, right? Mm -hmm. If you can get the information out there about what's happening, you know, with a particular institution, then the market will discipline it. And I think the regulators need to focus on, okay, like what is the, What's the structure of the system? What's the transparency in the system? What information is getting out into the market? And how can the market discipline mm -hmm. these entities within it? And obviously, there's a role for regulators in terms of regulating individual institutions. But I don't think the whole weight of mm -hmm. is this bank, you know, going to be who's going to discipline this bank should fall on that bank's regulators. Right. I think the market should be primarily the sort of discipliner of the bank. And, and I'm, I'm on audit committees. I'm on the audit committee of the New York Times. Yeah. And I look at the numbers and. Be careful what I say here, but but you know I can only trust the numbers to the extent that I trust that they've been copied properly. That there are all these things that I don't know the details of, yeah. and so um, you know it seems like if we can also throw algorithms into the system yeah. to so that there's not some human that's would you fail in this case? Well, let me do an audit. You know mm. that that there's some sort of mechanism that's looking for risk, yeah. um, and. You know, in, in a way, but but the, but the flip side, which is kind of interesting and scary to me, is I think more than the majority of transactions in, in equities right now um, are executed by algorithms without human intervention, right? Oh, except for overall. So so the question for me is when you throw artificial intelligence and machine learning in, yep. you'll have systems running around doing all kinds of things. Yep. So the only way to regulate or even manage these would be other systems that are running around tracking these things yep. or to build into the code certain and and, and, I, and I think you know I, I think the people who run these systems also have a, a benefit have an incentive to make sure the thing doesn't collapse right yep. so so and then it's interesting though because when you talk about like in these banks they, they put the quants in a separate room and you know and they don't really understand what the quants do yeah but to to your point, I think is if we start to think about how the future of regulation is, it's it's law, but it's also code. I think that we need these quants involved in the conversation about yeah. the regulation, and and we need the lawyers to understand the technology. Otherwise, you're going to create this 
unenforceable system, right? And I, and I think the, the cross-disciplinary thing is extremely important because like, I, I think it was six months ago, something like this, I went and visited uh, one of the law firms in London has got this sort of scheme where they go and they get people in and sort of give them scholarships for university. And I was talking to these guys and they must have been like late teens, early 20s. So they were doing their, their undergraduate degrees at law. Because in the, in the UK, you could just start straight into a law degree when you're 18. You can mm-hmm. just go in and then mm-hmm. go from there. And when they were talking to these guys and said, oh, what, like, what skill do I need for the future? I was like, learn how to code, right? If you can't, co- if you can't code, then you're going to be ex- ex- extremely large disadvantage as a lawyer because people who can both understand the law mm-hmm. and capable of understanding code are going to be really useful. Um, and because I, I think you need to understand both, it's not good enough for like a lawyer to say, "Oh well, you know, I'll get a programmer and they can think about that," because the, the programmer might know the code but they don't know the law. Um, so I think you can come from you know you can come from it from two different directions. You can either teach programmers like law, or you can teach lawyers how to code. And Which like, is better, do you think? I don't know. Well, I've, I've, gone, the, I've gone the second way. But like the, one of my things was like, like I've got to learn how to code. So like I started my undergraduate degree at the OU, like the part-time thing when I was learning, you know, getting back into my maths and getting back into, my, you know, like learning how to program a computer. And I'll carry on doing that, you know, mm-hmm. when I'm at MIT, because it's like not good enough to just say, well, I'm a lawyer or I'm an economist. And then that other stuff, it's not, you know, I don't need to know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's important for like, but it comes back to this point about these three disciplines interlocking, right? Mm-hmm. I think you need the more you can understand of all three of them, or at least two of them, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, yeah. It's it, but it's 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 really rare. I mean, yeah. there's one guy, Mr. Iwashita at the Bank of Japan, yeah. who understands technology and economics and law, yeah. and he's in charge of this whole system. But, yeah. but I think it has a lot to do with educational system, you know, yeah. right? Because you end it, you go in one door, and it's it's, it's very difficult. Um, yeah. And we're trying to do this here. We're going to be teaching a course um, that I hope you can help us with, um, together with the Harvard um, Berkman Center. And yeah. so we're going to get lawyers and engineers from MIT, and we're going to work together on on, on stuff. But that, you know, and, and it's easy to say, say mm. but it's. It, it's pretty hard. I mean, it's a real investment of time to get your head around the technology enough to where you can talk to people. And and here at MIT as well, um, you know, we're both going to be walk, working with Simon Johnson, who's a great economist. Yeah. And so I was just at his class with um, his MBA students, and uh, and we, I brought um, Neha, who's um, you know post doctorate from um, CSAIL, and and it was really fun. Um, sort of sitting and watching the MBAs get their head around sort of the architecture of the technology yeah. because it it does really expand the scope of creativity you can have because suddenly you're playing with the technology as if it were putty yeah. rather than, you know, some package you have to buy off the shelf, right? Exactly. And I think if you're trying to think about, okay, well, we're going to build a new financial system, we need, like, and I think it's inevitable that finance will be regulated, right? Mm -hmm. There is no world, I don't think, in which governments just say, okay, fine, now you've got new technology to do whatever you like with finance. It just doesn't work that way because, again, it comes back to, like, the average person on the street expects there to be some kind of, you know, like, safeguarding or whatever. So let's assume that there is going to be regulation of some kind. The question is, how is that regulation applied? And I think the usefulness of these disciplines is because it's going to have to, regulation is going to have to be rethought just as much as the private sector side of it. Like, okay, how do we use artificial intelligence? How do we use code? And I think unless you've got people thinking about it from scratch with the necessary skills, mm-hmm. then you're not, and, and I think that, you know, there's a great prize there. I think there's a, there's a way of regulating the system, you know, like there's great improvements to be had. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you need to be able to transcend 
one, your discipline, and two, the way things are done mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Which is why I was like working with young people. I always used to hire, like, try to hire young people to the digital currencies team because it's like they haven't yet been inculcated in this. This is how it works type right. world. Right. And some of the best people we've got. I mean, one of the best people on the team in the Bank of England is you know they've got twenty three, twenty five years old mm -hmm. because you know they think you know they think in new ways. They don't come at it and like and you know when I'm when I was hiring people for the team, I was thinking about getting people who weren't steeped in. Mm -hmm. a way of thinking so look everybody who came in didn't come in with a background from okay i've got all my sort of thoughts together about how things should work and i think that was very useful for us because we were sort of you know sort of journey of discovery mm -hmm. to a certain extent but i think you need that you know the sort of beginner's mind to a certain extent because yeah. then you're not i mean i was like the story about steve wozniak when he created the um, the apple one it's like you know he wasn't Nobody told him he couldn't build a personal computer or it couldn't be done. He just went and did it. Yeah. And he was like 19 years old or something. And it's like, that's what you yeah. need, right? And I think the biggest difference here is, like you said, we've got regulators, we've got a lot of incumbents. I mean, I think, you know, our job while you're at MIT is going to be, we have to convince two sides that really don't talk to each other, right? So the, the Bitcoin people really don't want to talk to regulators. They don't care about the regulators. And it's an open source software project. And you know, we're, they're just going to try to make the best system they can. They'll listen, but they're, they don't really, they're not really into talking to regulators. And the regulators, on the other hand, see these kids as, you know, a bunch of lawless kids who are off doing their own thing. We're going to build a proper system with safeguards, with vendors that we trust, right? And, and, and my fear is that, you know, this gap, um, for for the for us to get the internet effect where sort of we get these layers with everybody on the same yeah. platform i think we need to bring it together and I, I feel like there aren't that many people who are trying hard to pull these together i, yeah. I see both sides now building forts yeah. and um and there, there definitely are people there are a lot of people in the bitcoin community who get that they need to be talking to the other side i do think that in a weird way even though the central bankers are and the tax people are the people who sort of was originally why Bitcoin was created because they, didn't, you know, they they sort of didn't trust the system. Mm. I feel like the central bankers and and some of the regulators are more on the Bitcoin side because they're not in it for the money. Mm. They really want a system that's stable, that works, that's balanced. Whereas some of not as you point out, not everyone, but a lot of these incumbents are really once they figure out what's going on, are going to be sort of running around for their lives, right? There's a certain amount of that, but I think one of the things I always liked about technology is it's basically impossible to resist when there's a technological, there's a wave of technological change. Mm -hmm. You can't stop it, right? And it's like... You can uh, slow it down. But... You, you can, but like it's sort of inevitable that it's yeah. going to play out. Like when railways come out, I remember there was a, I don't know whether it's true or not, but I like the story, so I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> um, so there was a story about Brunel was the, built one of the first railways between, I think in the world, between Bristol and London. And there were all these guys, like, who used to run, like, horses, you know, the, the carriages between the, on the same route, and they do it in, like, a couple of days or something, he was doing it, like, four hours. Mm -hmm. And so I think they all went, you know, they, like, com complained, protested, departments, like, you've got to stop this guy, he's, like, killing our business. It's like, sorry, that's, that's, the, that's the way it goes, it's new technology, right? Yeah, you yeah. can't, nobody's going to have a horse and cart from Bristol that takes two days when you can get the train in, in four hours, right, right? Right, right? And I think there's a sort of an inevitability to it, and no matter how well connected you are, yeah. No matter who you know, if the world changes, it doesn't really matter. It's going to change, and yeah. you have to deal with it. Yeah, there's a, there's a funny, not funny, but it's a there's a, the story where you know the three networks used to control what would be on the news. So the three big networks could call and say, "Hey, let's not run this." And I think it was the the flowers incident with with uh, with Clinton. 
um, CNN was running, and I think one of the pools, one, one of the local stations ran the story and basically broke the, the you know, so, so, so it's, it's, it's interesting because there are these moments where somebody does something and suddenly the people who used to be in charge realize that, they, that, the, the, that the thing has left the barn. Yeah. And I feel like it could be something like the Singaporeans putting their treasury on a blockchain and allowing people to use it and then people just starting to use it and then the American treasury realizing, wait a second, this dollar dominance that they had is getting threatened by some little country that's decided to create a secure system for allowing transactions or, or mm -hmm. so some, some, something like that where it's not necessarily some rogue cypherpunk but some aggressive um, other, other country that, that, yeah. that decides to make something available. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also, you know, like countries see if the financial system's changing and they, you know, they've got a big sector, financial sector, it's like how do we preserve our position in that. Mm -hmm. And I think this has been, you know, underpins a lot of the UK's sort of support attraction towards fintech is that if a big chunk of your economy is about financial services right. and that changes, then you need to be in the next wave as well. Because if you're not, then you're going to mm -hmm. have serious trouble. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, when Bezos was talking about, the, like when he saw the e-ink reader, he's like, well, I've got to build the Kindle because mm -hmm. if I don't, somebody else will and my book business is finished, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, mm -hmm. I think I, I sort of see see it like that. You know, you've got to be on the next mm -hmm. wave because if you don't, I mean, there's plenty of examples of people not really adapting. Like, for example, you know, Microsoft, all dominant in desktop computing in the 90s. Mobile comes along. I think mean, Windows Mobile, if it's still going, has got like less than 1% or like less than 2% of the market. Mm -hmm. So it's like these big shifts are going to happen. And I think if you've gone back to the mid-90s and said, well, you know, the, 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 the Microsoft will be nowhere in the dominant computing platform in 20 years' time. People would think it was ridiculous, mm -hmm. but that's what happened. And it right. wasn't, it wasn't, you know, a regulate, you know, it wasn't a regulation or an antitrust case or anything that made that happen. It yeah. was a change in technology. And mm -hmm. Bill Gates saw it himself. I mean, he wrote the memo in '95, said this is going to change everything. He saw it. Right, right. So, right after he had been resisting it. Well, yeah, right. but yeah. but it's yeah. but it's like I think the point is that the. These technological changes are irresistible. I mean, if you look back through the whole of human history, right, it's always been changes in technology mm -hmm. that produce these yeah. big, you know, these big um, changes in society. Mm -hmm. You know, go back to agriculture, you know. Yeah. It is interesting, though, because I remember with Internet, the U.S. was all, all out. Japan pretended it wasn't doing Internet, but it was. Yeah. And, like... Europe dragged its feet. Mm -hmm. So I think from a business perspective, Europe fell behind. It didn't create a Cisco. It didn't create a 3Com. And I feel like with, in this case as well, you know, there's, there's a talent pool, right? Yeah. And I think that one of the key things I'm trying to build here at MIT is a robust talent pool of people who understand economics and law and, and the technology because you need those guys to build um, these systems. And I think one of the problems, for instance, in Japan is Japan's got a lot of money cash and it's got a big finance industry but there isn't a single japanese developer in bitcoin core mm. you know there isn't anybody that i know who who's committed code and there's one kid that shows up i mean works with us um to these meetings and you know and and, and that's not great and 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 the people who know cryptography enough to be able to contribute are stuck in big companies i'm working on research that's sort of irrelevant to this movement so mm -hmm. so i feel like that's that's actually pretty important because in the early days of the internet now everybody can do stuff but i remember when it was like just a handful of people that understood bgp and tcpip and 
all these other things. And so, so that those countries and those labs that actually had those people mm -hmm. um, were able to feed the companies and the industries in the countries yeah. um, where that development was happening. And so I think right now, and, and, and it's funny because I think like a lot of times the East Coast makes the open standards and the West Coast creates the monopolies and the businesses. Mm. Um, I feel like that might happen again where, where we, we um, you know, become one of the key people, key groups working on the sort of building the layers and the standardization around um, Bitcoin and, um, and maybe Silicon Valley is going to make all the companies. But, but hopefully we can, we can participate in that yeah. too. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a really, finance is such an enormous industry. And so it's so like, core to everything else you know we, i was talking earlier to Nehan. we were talking about like payments people don't really think about payments very much they're like oh yeah payments they're going to make a payment but if payments stop working the whole economy has a heart attack which mm -hmm. is why central banks right, are right. so if you look around the world even when regulation of banks went to like other places central banks kept hold of regulation of payment systems because payment systems are absolutely core to the mm -hmm. economy if they mm -hmm. stop working everything stops and like now, and what's interesting about this is that's where this revolution is starting. It's like in payment systems because that's really the core of the financial. Money is like the, the foundation. And I think this is why it's so important to think about like, okay, how's money going to be represented in this new world? What's going to be the role of central banks? What's going to be the role of private sector? And I don't think it's necessarily going to be the same in every country because each country's got its own like history and culture and they'll mm -hmm. do things differently. And like some, some are more comfortable with the public sector, or the private sector, whatever. But I think it's important to get that layer of money correct because all this other stuff, smart contracts, derivatives, et cetera, is all sort of sits on top of that. Mm -hmm. So if you can crack the money layer and get that right, mm -hmm. then I think, you know, you've really built the foundation for the new financial system. Awesome. So we're out of time and on that, that was a great way to end. Thanks, Thank Rob, and I look forward to working with you. It's great. Great uh, to be here. Thanks, Joey. Cool. Looking forward to it.